Today's scripture is uh, John 18, verses 27 to 40. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's quarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This is to fulfill the word uh, that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Thanks for reading God's word to us, Savannah. Good to see you all, New Hope. And it's great to be with all of you virtually on the Zoom call. I wonder how many of us have been feeling exhausted lately. I don't just mean today, I mean in the many, many days leading up to today, how many of you have been feeling worn down? Because after all, we're all facing a lot of uncertainty. We're facing unprecedented circumstances, lingering threats to our well-being. At least those are some of the words that I've been hearing a lot lately. Uncertainty, unprecedented circumstances, and lingering threats. I'm tired of hearing those words over and over and over again, but it's the reality of our experience right now. At, at the local kind of micro level, we're experiencing all of that with regard to our jobs. Those of us who have kids or our kids, we're experiencing that with regard to school. So much uncertainty, 
lingering threats there as well, unprecedented circumstances. We're experiencing it as a church, too. But then the bigger picture is even a little more unsettling. We've got tropical storms and hurricanes in the Gulf. We've got fires in California. We've got daily shootings. We've got riots in the Northwest and the Midwest. We've got cries for justice and cries for order and peace. We've got a looming election and everything that goes along with that. No wonder people keep talking about uncertainty and navigating unprecedented circumstances and dealing with the lingering threat of whatever. Name the threat. There are so many. Our Lord's words today, New Hope, can help us rest. They can help us breathe a bit in the midst of all that we're experiencing. His words in John 18, 36 are what I'm talking about specifically, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. This simple statement has the power to stabilize us, to reorient us. It also has the power to challenge us. So I want to invite you to pray with me, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to do all those things through these simple words. Lord, as we approach your eternal truth, we, 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 we do so expectantly, but we don't want to take anything for granted. And so, Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive everything that you have to teach us and show us. Lord, you, in, you communicate clearly, but we don't always receive those communications clearly. So wipe away whatever baggage we bring in to read your word. Whatever false assumptions and false perspectives that might keep us from understanding what you have for us, pierce us with your truth. And we ask that you would stabilize us, that you would strengthen us, energize us to continue to press on no matter what we face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So please open to, if you have a Bible, to John 18, verse 28. John 18, verse 28. And I'll set the scene for us. This is Jerusalem. Jesus was arrested on a Thursday night. And that same night, the highest-ranking religious leaders in the community interrogated him. Okay, so he had to stand before the religious rulers of his day and face their interrogation. And then the next morning, Matthew tells us, Matthew 27 tells us that all the chief priests and the elders of the people, that's all those religious rulers, he says, they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. John doesn't mention that, but it's a quote from Matthew 27 in his gospel. That they laid a death sentence on Jesus. And early that same morning, those same rulers, they transported Jesus over to another ruler. They took him over to the Roman headquarters of Pontius Pilate. Now at that time, the whole region of Palestine, including Jerusalem, was under Roman rule. 
Um, and, and so you, you have these two bodies that, that, that hold lots of authority here. You have the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, those religious rulers. But then you also have the Roman Empire represented locally here by Pontius Pilate, the governor of that region of, that included Jerusalem, the region of Judea. And so you've got the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and you've got the Roman Empire represented by Pontius Pilate. Between both of these two bodies, they are powerful. They hold sway. Now, even though the Sanhedrin, they had already handed Jesus a death sentence, but they still brought him to Pilate. Because in verse 31, they explained that they themselves, as a as Jewish council, as a religious council, couldn't legally execute Jesus. They needed the authority of Pilate to actually do that. So that's the setup. That's the scene. And what we have here in this section that Savannah just read for us is fundamentally a, a contrast, a stark contrast between authorities. And it's not really a contrast between the authority of the Jewish council and the authority of the Roman governor. No, it's a contrast between the authority of Jesus and all the other authority, not only in Palestine, but on earth. Not only in the first century, but throughout history. It's a contrast between the authority of Christ and all other authority. The contrast between the level and scope of his power and everyone else's. And really, what we're looking at here is a, is a contrast between the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of the world. And if we sit here for a while, what we can see, and we look closely, what we're going to see is this contrast, what we learn here about Jesus, his kingdom, his authority, his power, it can settle us in the way that we need settling. It can calm us in the way that we need calming, and it can also challenge us in the way that we need challenging. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to compare these kingdoms, the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of this world. And we're going to start by comparing the rulers of these respective kingdoms. Let's look at the rulers. On the one hand, we have Jesus. He was probably still bound up, tied up at this point as he stands before Pilate. He's been taken by force to stand before this governor. He's interrogated. But as you read through this, you have to ask, who's really in control here? For one, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin and the governor, they're not on the same page at all. And the more you read through this section over and over again, you start to see that they seem to kind of lack control of the situation. Look at verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them, that is, to the Jewish council, and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now notice, throughout this whole section, they keep calling Jesus this man. And they answered him, this man, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They kind of skirt the question in a sense. He says, what has he done? And they say, well, if he hadn't done anything wrong, we wouldn't have brought him to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and, and judge him by your own law. He wants to clean his hands of it. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
This was, look at verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You catch that? All this is happening to fulfill Christ's words. All the way back in John 3, Jesus alluded, although, although kind of cryptically, he alluded to the fact that he was going to die via crucifixion. The Jewish practice at the time for execution, when they did execute people, whether legally or illegally, was to do it via stoning. They would pelt people with huge rocks until they were covered with stones. The Roman practice for execution was different. It was to lift up the one to be executed on a cross. And back in John 3, he says, I will be lifted up. And in saying that, he's indicating by what manner he would die. To make things even clearer, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Jesus says in that, in, to his, to his uh, disciples there, he says, we're going to Jerusalem. And then he explains why they were going to Jerusalem. He said that's where he'd be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they would condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, meaning the Romans. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. You, you see, whose plan is really being carried out here as Jesus stands before the powerful Roman governor? To this point, all of his predictions have unfolded perfectly. He said, we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be condemned by the Jews, and I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. All of that has happened. And everything that Jesus says is going to happen from there on. He's going to be mocked, he's going to be flogged, he's going to be executed, he's going to rise from the dead. All that's about to happen, and we're going to get there in the weeks ahead. So who's in control here? Whose plan is being unfolded? It's not the Jewish councils, although they thought that their plans were unfolding perfectly. And it's certainly not the Roman governor's plans. He doesn't seem to have a plan here to begin with. He's trying to handle this, this predicament. You know, you might even wonder when you read this, who's really on trial here? The, the heading in my Bible, in this section, it says, Jesus before Pilate. But I think it, it could say, Pilate before Jesus. It, look at verse 33. It says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? In other words, why are you asking, Pilate? Where does this question come from? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Those are the words we really want to focus on. My kingdom is not of this world. But look, he goes on. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Now, he's not saying, I have no jurisdiction in this world. He's not saying, I have no authority in this world. On the contrary, he's saying, my authority doesn't originate in this world. It doesn't come from this world. I wasn't elected to this position. I wasn't appointed to this position. I can't be removed from this position. 
by any power in this world. And furthermore, Jesus is explaining here, the scope of my power is not restricted to this world. It's not limited by the the systems and the structures of this world. My authority comes from beyond, outside this world, and it extends beyond this world. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. See, Jesus is not on his heels here at all. If anything, the governor seems to be on his heels a bit. Jesus is asking more questions than he's answering. And even with this final statement, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, he's asking, implicitly, he's asking the governor, are you about the truth? Do you understand and believe the truth? It's as if he's asking the governor, who do you say that I am? That's what matters here. What matters for you, Pilate, for your destiny, for your life, your eternity depends on this. Who do you say that I am? I know who I am. Pilate says to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Christ exudes so much control here. There's this quiet control, control over self and over the whole scenario. But but look at how Pilate and, and the Jewish council, they all seem to be scrambling, scrambling to protect their own interests, their own kingdoms. They are rulers in fear of losing their own kingdoms. The Jews see Jesus as a threat because he's undermining their influence. We saw that throughout this gospel. Pilate sees Jesus as a threat, but only really indirectly because he's a threat to stability and and order. Pilate wants to pacify these Jewish rulers who want to see Jesus executed. And so he does. He gives in. So you see the limited power of these rulers? They're all nervous. They're motivated by fear, by self-preservation. They're trying to maintain the power that they have. Pilate is conflicted. He's not sure. What, John doesn't give us the whole account the other Gospels do. We find out through the other Gospels that Pilate really had a hard time making a decision over what to do with Jesus. He wants the Jews to make the decision. Then he sends Jesus off to Herod. He wants Herod Antipas to make the decision. Finally, he has to do it, and so he does. He's a conflicted ruler. In the Sanhedrin, that council, they were a restricted group of rulers. They can't do all the things they want to do. But look at the power of Jesus. He is resolute. There's the stability to him. He is sure of his identity, sure of his purposes. He is without fear. And look, really, we're not just comparing Jesus to to Pilate and to the Sanhedrin here. You know what I really want us to do? I want us to compare Jesus to every ruler, to everyone who clings to, to power 
in this world. People that we might find impressive. Compare Jesus to the person you find most impressive, most accomplished, most powerful, most wealthy. They all look small. In fact, they look petty up against the image of this king who they keep calling this man. He's tied up. He's holding a death sentence in his hands. And yet they all pale in comparison to him. He exudes more power in the state of bondage and condemnation than they do as they're swinging around their power. And by the way, by the way, don't think that when Jesus says, my kingdom of not of this is not of this world, he, he, he's, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care about this world. No, he explains to Pilate, he says, I came into this world with a purpose, to bear witness to the truth. And that's when Pilate says, what is truth? It's the wrong question. Because the truth that Jesus is talking about is not a what, it's a who. He, this king, is ultimate truth. And he came into this world, the world that he created, to bear witness to himself. To, to call people, everyone, to give up their ambitions, to build their own kingdoms, maintaining their own little fiefdoms. He's calling people, all of us, away from trying to build our own name. Calling us away from trying to obtain and maintain some, some power, some prestige, some status. He's calling us away from trying to get and maintain any of that. He came to call people to acknowledge and submit to his rule, to his kingship. Because it's a different kind of kingship, a different kind of rule. While these other men were scrambling to protect themselves, you know what Jesus was about here? John alludes to it at the very start of this section when he says, they led Jesus from, this is verse 28, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? They sent Jesus into the headquarters. They didn't go in so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. You see, as Jewish men, they believed that to enter that Gentile space, it would, it would leave them impure. It would defile them. And so they had to stay out of that space if they wanted to keep celebrating the Holy Feast of Passover, which was ongoing at this point. There's irony all over this. First of all, they're handing over the Holy One, the only pure one, and, such, and, they're, and they're sending him to condemnation so that they themselves could stay clean. But there's more irony than that. The irony is that the man that they're handing over to the Romans, he embodies the Passover. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. You see, because Jesus was about to die. And die not simply as a victim, but as a sacrifice. In a world filled with rulers and leaders and powerful people that are all scrambling to protect self and status, this king is going to die to protect, to rescue his people. 
from sin and death and all that's wrong with this world. So that long after Pilate and Caiaphas and Annas and all these people are dead and gone, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them will be saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This king is also a lamb. The most powerful man in the room is also the most vulnerable man in the room. He made himself weak. He's the humblest man in the room. Willing, as everyone, all the other rulers try to protect themselves, he's willing to give up himself quietly like a sheep led to slaughter, Isaiah says. Why? So this king, who's also the lamb, could rescue his people and eternally sit as king and as lamb on the throne and receive their praise and their honor forever and ever. Why do you think you and I know the name of Pontius Pilate? You think that you and I would know the name of Pontius Pilate if he never had this conversation with Jesus? He's only famous because he was connected with Jesus on this particular evening, this particular morning, I should say. Unless you're a Roman historian. Why do we know who, why in the world do, do I know who was high priest in 1 AD? The only reason I know is because they condemned Jesus. That connection with him is what gave them the greatest fame they ever obtained, they ever would obtain. Brothers and sisters, when, when, when I look at the people who hold power, when you look at the people who, hold, who held power throughout history, all of them looked impressive in their day, and all of them have faded away. Perhaps, perhaps mourned and remembered by a few. But the name of Jesus reigns above all of them. The unforgettable name of Jesus the King. When I look at the people who hold power in our nation, I am deeply troubled. We are governed largely by men and women who do not fear God and are not of the truth, as Jesus would say. And if your hope is wrapped up in the fact that that, that might change one day, I believe you'll be disappointed. Because the corruption, the self-serving, the lies that exist at the highest levels of leadership in our nation, that's not unprecedented, as folks say. It's reflective of the history of this world. The only leader who deserves to be the focus of our hope is the king whose authority and power and whose very identity are not of this world. So if you've trusted in him as lamb, as king, then you can hope in him now and trust that he will be the focus of your admiration and your allegiance, as Revelation says, forever and ever. His name will not be forgotten. That's kind of a little comparison between kings, rulers. Let's compare their kingdoms a little bit. Let's compare the kingdom of Christ with the kingdom of this world. 
in this kingdom, this world, how does one establish power? Often, not always, but often it's established through manipulation, deception, maybe fear-mongering, maybe pandering, maybe bribing. There are many ways to establish power in this world, many shameful ways to establish power. But in his kingdom, how is power established in Christ's kingdom? It's perfect wisdom and, and selfless power. And how is it established? Through humble sacrifice. See how upside down that is? You see how different this kingdom is from the kingdom that we're used to living in? In this kingdom, in this world, leaders and rulers and kings, if you will, they, they use power to protect self-interest and to protect the interests of those who support them if that's in their best interest. But in Christ's kingdom, the king gives up all he has to serve those who at one point were his enemies, to bring them into his kingdom. In this kingdom, in this world, how is injustice dealt with? Sometimes it's ignored. Would you you agree that in this kingdom, in this world, injustice is largely ignored? And when it's responded to, sometimes, perhaps even often, it's responded to violence, with vengeance, with war, with rioting. How about in Christ's kingdom? How is injustice dealt with? It's wiped out. It's wiped out when it's met with perfect justice. This kingdom, this world is a dangerous place, isn't it? Lingering threats surround us. Cancer and violence and virus and hurricanes, they're all lingering threats. How about in his kingdom? In his kingdom, there's just the unsurpassable security of eternal life. Not even sadness lives there. In this kingdom, you never quite measure up, do you? In this world, you never quite meet the standards, do you? You're always judged, you're always evaluated either by others or by yourself. But how about in his kingdom? In his kingdom, the king was judged for you. And through faith in his death and his resurrection, you come into that better kingdom as a full citizen, never to be judged or evaluated again. And there you belong. You are called and made worthy because you're covered by the righteousness of the king. Christ's kingdom overcomes the world. It doesn't just outshine the world. It doesn't just make the world, this kingdom, pale in comparison. No, ultimately it overcomes this world. And by faith in Christ, you're welcomed into that kingdom. John 18 faces us with the question, which kingdom do we want to live in? (laughs) Which kingdom do we want to stake our lives on? 
Which kingdom do we want to build our lives on and trust in? New Hope, I believe that God has recently, perhaps not in an unprecedented way, but in a particularly powerful way, he's been pulling back the curtain a little bit to show us the brokenness and the ugliness, the uncertainty of this kingdom. Some of us aren't just exhausted. We are overwhelmed, besides ourselves, despairing. Anxiety and depression are on the rise. Suicide rates in the United States have been increasing at an alarming pace. Maybe, just maybe, we are seeing and experiencing more of the brokenness of this kingdom. And it's overwhelming us. Every time you see an unarmed man unjustly detained, hit, killed by a public servant. Every time you observe systems and practices that serve one segment of the population to the neglect or or at the cost of another. Every time you see people setting homes and businesses on fire. Every time you see people assaulting their own neighbors, threatening and, and demanding allegiance to their cause. It it feels unreal, it feels surreal to see the images one after the other after the other. But don't think, my goodness, this is out of this world. No, it's not. It's very much of this world. All of that is. Christ stands opposed to all of it, but it does not surprise him. In some way, every single act of evil that we witness or we perpetrate It's in keeping with the deep ethics and values of this world. And it all stands in stark contrast with the ways of Christ's kingdom. Read the Sermon of the Mount sometime. We don't have time to do that. I'm not going to do that today, but read the Sermon on the Mount. Christ lays out there uh, the, the ethics, the values of his kingdom, the ways of his kingdom, what life looks like in his kingdom. And if you look at the description of what life looks like in his kingdom, and you were to flip every one of those points upside down, it starts to look a little bit like America in 2020. And not just in 2020. And not just out there, not just in the world around us and certain neighborhoods, certain places, or in Washington. No, it's, it's here. It's here amongst us, and it's here in our hearts. That impulse to hate your enemy, to serve yourself, to take revenge, to get power and hold power, to amass wealth and use it selfishly. That's the anti-Sermon on the Mount. That's what life, that's the opposite of what life is meant to look like in Christ's kingdom. And yet all of those values, they're, they're deeply ingrained in us. The ways of this kingdom come natural to us. You know, one of the amazing contrasts that we can, that we can see between Christ's kingdom and, and this kingdom of this world is that one of them is coming and the other is going. One is on the way in, and the other is on the way out. The structures and power of this world are very, very temporary. 
It's all on the way out. Just like the Roman Empire and all the status that guys like Pilate enjoyed at one time, it's all gone. This kingdom, this kingdom that we stand in here on this earth, its days are numbered and running down very fast too. The resurrected Christ is returning. And when he returns, he will fully establish his perfect rule. It's coming. His kingdom is coming. Even as this kingdom breathes its last breaths. But in a sense, Christ's kingdom is is already here too. It's already arrived. Because Jesus was born. And he lived and he died and he rose again. It's here in, in a sense. His kingdom is here. If you have believed in and submitted your life to Jesus as king, then you're already living under his kingship right now. And his spirit lives in you. And his spirit's at work in every one of his subjects. You see, his kingdom is here, and it's coming. It's getting stronger. That means that if you are a citizen of Christ's kingdom, you can and you must live as a citizen of his kingdom now. As a representative of his kingdom towards those who are not in his kingdom. You see, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, that's meant to motivate us to to wait for the future perfect arrival of his kingdom when all things will be made right. But it's also meant to motivate us to live now as citizens of his kingdom. So on the one hand, when when we hear Jesus say, my kingdom is not of this world, there's, there's comfort in there for us. I wonder if many of us, we experience anxiety, and I know it's not all of us, we experience anxiety for different reasons, and most of us is for multiple reasons, but one reason perhaps that some of us experience anxiety is because we don't fully believe Jesus' words here. We don't believe that his authority, somehow functionally at least, we don't believe that he holds authority and he holds power now. And as, as, as much as he was in control on that Friday morning in the praetorium. He's in control now. As he stood in the midst of sinful people doing sinful things and he was turning it all to accomplish his perfect purposes, he stands as powerful right now doing the same thing. And to the degree that we don't believe that, we're bound to get anxious and fearful. He's saying, hold tight. Don't lose hope. I'm king. I'm present. And I'm coming back in power. But on the other hand, what he says here challenges us. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, there's a, there, he's warning and challenging us. He's saying, don't buy in to this kingdom. 
Don't buy into the values and the ethics and the ways of this world. Don't start looking for ultimate solutions in this world. We can start doing that in subtle ways. I think Christians are prone to do that, especially in election season. Start looking to particular people and and hoping that maybe in them or maybe in their policies or maybe in these ideologies over here, maybe, maybe there'll be some permanent solutions and things will be made right. It can look different ways. We can suddenly start moving in that direction. Look different ways. It can look like what some people have called syncretism. You know what syncretism is? It's where religions are kind of, two religions are kind of brought together, amalgamated, and then kind of mixed into one new religion. So Christians start becoming syncretists. We take our beliefs, what we know Jesus has taught, we start mixing it with some other ideologies that seem pretty hopeful. I saw, I see this happen. We see it happen. I saw this happen recently. I, I, I was watching, I watched, I didn't watch it live. I watched a, a, a video clip of our vice president giving a campaign speech in which he quoted Hebrews chapter 12. This glorious passage in God's word that calls us to set all of our hope on Jesus Christ. And so our vice president said, let's run the race set before us. That's Hebrews 12. And let's set our eyes on the American flag, he says, and on the great heroes in our land. You see what happens here. He took the very words that God has given to his church to keep us from despair. He says, run the race and set your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He's the only one you can look to. And yet a politician, and he's not alone, I'm sure many have done this, would take the name of Jesus out and say, hey, look to your nation. Look to this political party. Look to our grand history. And there you'll find hope. And there you'll find the strength you need. That's syncretism, folks. That is Christianity and wicked idolatry amalgamated into some warped new religion. Of course, he's not the only one who does this sort of thing. We can espouse ideologies that look to hope through, through violence, through rage, through vengeance, and somehow connect that with Christianity and try to rationalize it. In subtle ways, as believers who, who, have, who have vowed our allegiance to King Jesus can start substituting the ways of this kingdom for his ways. We want to see things get better here, and so we start to put all our hope in a political process. Or maybe we put our hope in violence or coercion or power or money. This happens in the political realm, and I'm just thinking about that because it's where we're at as a country, but it happens in many, many, many other realms as well. I think one of the reasons this can happen is because we begin listening to 
the words, the ways of this world more than we're listening to the words and the ways of our king. And we start assimilating the values and the ethics of this kingdom where we are not meant to be citizens. Whether we're listening to the news commentary or the political punditry or the opinions of people and not listening to Jesus' words, not reading his words, not absorbing his words, not being reminded of how wonderful they are. We're exiles here. Exiles from Christ's kingdom, living in this kingdom, in this world. And as exiles, it's easy to forget where you're from. Many, many people have come, for instance, to the United States as immigrants, as very young immigrants. And their families give them a hard time. He said, you're, you're losing your culture. You don't even speak our language anymore. You become Americanized. Or you can move to New York from Texas, and eventually you stop talking like you're from Texas, right? We're all prone to move from one place to another and, and start to lose our roots. We start looking like and acting like and talking like we're from that new place. And this is true for us as Christians. We can start looking less and less like we are citizens of God's kingdom and start looking more and more like all of our hope and all of our dreams and all of our safety is rooted here. Your political party does not have the answers. And I can say that confidently, even though I have no idea who each of your respective political parties might be. Your political party, whoever it might be, doesn't truly align with the ethics and values of Christ's kingdom. Not perfectly, not totally. In fact, if you feel completely at home and at ease in some political party or in some worldly ideology, I suspect that that's not a good place to be. Perhaps, perhaps it's because you've begun to allow the words and the values of your party or, or of man-made institutions to displace the words and the values of Christ. I agree wholeheartedly with author Barnabas Piper who wrote, Christian, if you feel politically homeless, like you don't really fit anywhere, I mean, you may fit a little bit better on this side, than on that side, or a lot better on this side than that side, but you really don't fit perfectly anywhere. You're homeless. He says you're probably right where God wants you to be because this world is not your home. And we serve a greater ruler, and we are to represent his kingdom. And his kingdom looks nothing, not a bit like our present political power structures and parties. Christ's words challenge us to reject absolute allegiance to any ideology, any party, any ethnic group, any person other than King Jesus himself. But also comforts us. And we need that comfort because living in exile is uncomfortable. Living in exile in this kingdom, in this earth, waiting for Christ's kingdom to arrive in fullness, it can mean facing lots of uncertainty, unprecedented circumstances, and lingering threats. 
but we get to do that while we trust wholly and solely in the power of our king, his ways, his words. At the end of the story, what happens? The end of the scene, Pilate gives the people a choice. Who do you want to be your king? And what do they say? Not this man. Give us Barabbas. That same choice lies before us. Who do we want to be our king? And functionally speaking, day to day, whose kingdom are we going to live as citizens of? Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, when, when, when you contrast your glory with what this world thinks is glorious, we're blown away. You amaze us, Lord. We love you. We want to serve you. Please keep us. Keep us fully aligned, fully loyal, fully invested in you and your kingdom. So in your name we pray. Amen.